0: Well, you've got history together. There's been some texting back and forth, some hanging out. When you're together, there's butterflies going on in your stomach. But nothing formally has been discussed yet, and it's certainly not Facebook official. And thoughts start to come into your mind like, where exactly is this thing heading? It can't stay in no man's land forever. Well, just a, a little bit of free advice for you if you're in that situation. When those thoughts come, you know that it's time for a DTR. It's what the Urban Dictionary calls a define the relationship moment. It's the moment when two people have the chat. You know the chat? The chat where you discuss the mutual understanding of the relationship. What is this? And where is this all heading. Well it's interesting, Exodus chapter 19, I'll invite you to open up there now, is a DTR moment. It is a define the relationship moment. It's the moment where God moves to define the relationship with his people and it tells us how God defined that relationship but it also tells you the defining factor in your relationship with God. I wanna encourage you this morning, maybe it's time for you to have a fresh DTR moment with God, because sometimes all it takes is a little bit of sin, or some discouragement, or some doubt, or some bad thinking, and you can start to wonder in your heart and mind, what is this? Where is this going? What is this thing that I actually have with God. Is it time for a DTR with God? Well, the first thing we see here in this chapter is that the people come to a mountain. Notice this for all you lovers, all DTR moments happen on a mountain. There's something about the view and the atmosphere up there. But we see here immediately on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on the day They came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And so now God here in this moment is going to speak to Moses to remind him of their history together. And we see that from verse 3. The Lord calls out to him from the mountain, saying, This you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God reminds them of their history. He describes them as being like an eagle to them. Now, of course, an eagle is a fierce bird. And God was fierce in his judgment of the people of Egypt. Eagles are also a rescue bird. And God, he swooped down like an eagle and the people of Israel got on top of his wings and he flew them out of Israel, of Egypt. But eagles are also a bird of shelter because of their incredible span of their wings. And so all throughout the, the wilderness, the people of Israel were sheltered. They came under the shelter of Of his wings. And so, this is how their relationship with God is defined to this point. It has been defined by God's divine grace based on God's promise. And God tells Moses, Remind the people of this first. Remind them of this first. And we need that reminder too that salvation is always from God by his grace. It is his unearned favour that is freely given to us. We're just like the vulnerable prey that's sitting out in the wilderness waiting to be devoured but God by his divine grace swoops down like an eagle and he rescues us from sin, death and slavery. This is what defines what they have with God. It's not what they did, it's not what you did, it's what he did for you. But, but notice here where the eagle has landed. I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. I brought you to myself. You see, God didn't just save Israel to get out of Egypt, but to actually bring them to him. And this is always true in salvation. Salvation is never an end in itself, There is also always something greater than salvation that you get, and that is God himself. And this is is true. We don't just escape hell in salvation. We gain God. We gain him. And so on that basis of what God has done for them. He's the eagle that has bore them up on his wings. He's brought them to himself. God now moves to define the relationship further, what he wants this to be. Where is this all heading? Verse five, "'Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice "'and keep my covenant, "'you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, "'for the whole earth is mine, "'and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests "'and a holy nation.'" These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So notice here, how does God define the relationship he has with his people? The first thing we see is salvation. I bore you up on eagle's wings. This is not of your own doing. This is what God did by, based on his divine promise and his divine grace. But then secondly, we see it's marked by obedience. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep My covenant. So it's salvation, it's obedience. And thirdly, we see blessing. You shall be my treasured possession. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is a really important sequence to understand. It is God's first move of grace that then demands a response of obedience that then triggers the blessing that comes from being brought into God's presence. They aren't being called to obey for salvation. In fact, how is that even possible? When they were there in slavery in Egypt, what hope did they have of saving themselves? What, what, what obedience could have actually saved them? No, it wasn't because they were more righteous than any other nation. It wasn't because there was anything special about them. It was based on God's salvation of them by his grace. And so they aren't called to obey in order to receive salvation, but they have received salvation That they might obey, that they might obey God. They've been brought to Himself. And this is how God defines this relationship. God's grace is intended to draw a response of obedience. And that is the definition of God and His people and their future together. God's grace is the root of salvation, but obedience is the fruit of the salvation, it's what must follow. And so in verse seven, it says, so Moses came and he called the elders of the people and he set before them all these words that the Lord commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's all very compliant, isn't it, in their their response. And I want you just to park their response in your memory just for a moment. But you ever wonder why? Why does God desire this obedience so much a lot of people in our time wonder that why does God need our obedience and I think it's something that you can't really understand until you've met him until you've actually encountered him personally and that's what's going to happen now we see in verse 8 and 9 Moses reports all of their agreement all of the words of the people to the Lord and the Lord says to Moses behold I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear what uh, may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever you see God is coming God is is coming upon them the king is coming And the people must be ready. We're getting to see a little bit about what God is like. And we're seeing what he's like by what God instructs Moses to get them to do in order to be ready. Verse 9, go to the people. Tell them to consecrate themselves today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. The people must wash They must be clean. But not only that, we see it goes on to say, and you shall set limits. You shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come to the mountain, You see what's happening here? God desires their obedience. Why? Because his presence is coming to them on the mountain. They must wash their clothes. They must set limits around the mountain. They must not touch the mountain. You see, this is telling us something about the nature and the character of God. You can't understand obedience and the call to obedience unless you understand who God is. And what we're seeing here is that God is holy. God is holy, holy, holy. That's how God is defined. That's who He is. And so, relationship with Him requires holiness. A holy God requires holiness. And this is perhaps the most misunderstood thing in our time about God that God is holy and He requires holiness. Holiness means that He is distinct, He's set apart, it means that God is not like us, He's completely other from us. He's so uh, pure that nothing that is impure can be in his presence and survive it. This is the nature of God. You know, there is some air, there is some water in our world that is so pure that if you were to breathe it in or drink it in, it will actually start to take your life from you. It will start to consume you. And there's some laboratories in the world that house this stuff. And if you actually drink This water, this water that's been stripped of all its minerals and and all this thing, it's so pure that it'll actually start to take minerals from your body that you need in order to survive. This is what God is like. God is holy. There is nothing that is impure that can be in the presence of a holy God and survive. God is holy, holy, holy. It's beyond comprehension to be in his presence, for a sinner to be in his presence is a deadly, deadly thing. And so we see here in verse 14, Moses heeds the word of God and he goes down the mountain to the people and he consecrates the people and they wash their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. He's talking about do not have sexual relations with your wife, not because sexual relations in a marriage is wrong or sinful or dirty in any way, but this is about abstaining from the ordinary things of life because the King is coming. A majestic, holy, awesome, powerful creator God is coming and the people must, have, must be ready. They must respect. They must be in awe of him. They must prepare And we see here what happens when he comes on the morning of the third day. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. They trembled at his coming. We see why Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain itself trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. I think what these people witnessed on this day was one of the most awesome and yet terrifying displays of divine power that anyone has ever experienced on the face of the earth. All the forces of nature slammed against this mountain, lightning and thunder and darkness and smoke and fire and earthquake. His, his presence, just imagine the people there, there's limits around the mountain, they cannot step over those, those limits. God's presence has come on the mountain and it is reverberating through their body. It is pounding in their hearts, the very felt presence of God with them. Did you know that God still exists like this today? He still exists in this kind of power and glory and majesty as we speak because God is unchanging in his nature and his character. He's awesome in his power and his presence. If we were able to see him in his heavenly throne with our eyes today, we would behold the same glory as Israel Israel beheld on Mount Sinai. It's the same thing that Isaiah was given to see the holiness and the awesomeness of God, and he fell to his face, he said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, impurity coming into contact with the awesome holiness and purity of God. It's the same thing that the Apostle John, Jesus' best friend on earth, saw when he beheld him in the book of Revelation. He fell over as if dead in the presence of a holy God. You see, when you see what God is like, you understand why relationship with him Requires holiness. Holiness requires holiness. And so God brings this people to a mountain. And it is a privilege that no other nation experiences. It is a privilege. It is terrifying. It is awesome. But what we see here is that though God has brought them to this mountain, and it's a privilege for them to see and behold what God is like, we see next in verse 21 that the people cannot go up the mountain. They cannot go up. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also... Let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. You see, you have to pick up the severe, terrifying tension of here. Here, go down and warn the people, God says to Moses, lest the Lord break out against them. God has given them this privilege of of, of his presence like no other nation. And yet, they must maintain their distance because of the holiness and the awesomeness of God. They can come so far, but they cannot go all the way because of who God is. And when Moses understands this, when he arrives, he understands this fully and he cries out to the Lord. And the Lord says to him, do not let them come up. Do not let them come up, but Moses, you come up. And take your brother Aaron and come up to me. Now in this chapter, we see that this is the sixth time now that Moses has gone up the mountain and down the mountain. Between God and the people, in verse three, Moses goes up. In verse seven, Moses goes down. In verse eight, Moses goes up. In verse 14, Moses goes down. In verse 20, he goes up. In verse 21, he goes down. Only Moses can go up to God and down to the people. And so you ask yourself, what is the defining factor in the relationship between God and his people? The defining factor here is Moses himself. He's the one who goes up and down. He's the bridge that connects the people to God. He's the one that brings the very presence of God to them, and yet Holds them back and protects them from the awesome power of God's holiness. He's the one who stands in the gap. He's the mediator between a holy God and an unclean people. And notice this is God's intention. Back in verse 9, God said, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. And God actually, catch this, God comes in a thick cloud. Why does He come in a thick cloud? It's to actually shield the brilliance of His holiness. It's actually to protect them because you don't know what you don't know, do you? You don't know how holy God is, but God knows. He actually protects them from his holiness. And he says to them, "I'm coming in a in a cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you, Moses, and may also believe you, Moses, forever." You see, this is this is what God's intention was is that it would be through Moses that they would maintain a relationship with God. Now now, Moses was just a human, and at this point, he's 80-plus years old. He's not going to be around forever. But what we see, and what we're going to see this next week in Exodus 20, is that this covenant that God makes with Moses, these, these words, these 10 words, the 10 commandments as we know them, they are going to endure and last forever. They are going to be the thing by which this people relate and covenant and keep covenant with God. And so Moses was given the authority to actually speak to them and give them God's law. And so Moses himself, he's the defining factor in their relationship, that they might obey his word forever. Now, what you might think, you imagine for a moment, all the people are standing around the mountain and they're keeping their distance and they're being held back and Moses is going up to communicate with God and he's coming down to communicate with them. And you would think, as the people of God, that standing around a mountain like this and hearing and seeing the awesomeness of God and hearing his voice in the thunder speak to Moses, his heart, that it would motivate their obedience forever. It would be so terrifying that they would actually never forget this and always be faithful to God forever. Remember what they said in their reply to God when it was proposed to them before God arrived? all that we will do, all that the Lord has said we will do. This is their response. And yet what we see in Exodus 32, which is just 40 days after this moment, is that while Moses is up on the mountain communing with God, the people are down in the wilderness and they build themselves a golden calf to worship in the place of God. You know, some people say today in our time, well, if God was here, then I would live for him. If if I could see God in front of me with my own eyes, then I would obey him, then I would live for him. But these people prove that that isn't true. Our problem is much deeper than just needing proof of who God is. Because if someone took a camera and shone it into your heart, pointed it into your heart, what would they see? Often in our time, we think that God, that, that what that camera would show is just is, is beautiful gardens, beautiful lawns and beds of roses. But the reality is, the Bible describes our heart as like putting a camera into a sewerage pipe, that our motivations are flawed, our desires are bent out of shape, that given the right opportunities, all people, no matter who they are, will commit, the ro- commit wrong, and do evils. And so the point is is that everything may look fine on the surface above God, but above ground, but God actually sees the heart. He knows the motivations and the intentions of our heart. And so it is a terrifying thing for impure people to come into contact with the purity of God. Hebrews 10.31 says this, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I want you to catch just how much fear these people are experiencing around this mountain. Because there's a commentary on this in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12. This is 1,500 years after the event and we see what it's like for this people to behold the holiness of God. It describes it as a a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Can you imagine this? They're standing around the mountain and they're begging Moses, make it stop. His holiness is so great. These words that he's saying are too much for us to bear. Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I wonder if you catch this. This is 1,500 years later. The people at the mountain could not bear it to be this way. They couldn't bear to hear another word. Moses himself trembled in the presence of a holy God. But the good news is that the writer goes on and he turns this statement into a a beautiful statement that's written to the church. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion. See, we've come to a better mountain as people that stand in this period of time, the church has come to a better mountain, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. It's an incredibly different looking scene. It's, it's not one of fear and trembling, but one of feasting and, and party in atmosphere, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You see, why do we have these blessings that the people at Sinai did not have. It's because we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You see, the defining factor in your relationship with God is Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. He is the greater and the better Moses who brings us into a new covenant, the covenant that we celebrated and enjoyed this morning in symbol by the Lord's Supper, the covenant in his blood. Now, the difference here is not that God has changed. God has not changed. He is present on both mountains. He is still holy and awesome in power like at Sinai. But the difference is is that when you come to God's better mountain in Jesus Christ, we are now on the right side of God's justice. We've been made right and acceptable in the eyes of God. How is this possible? It's through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came down from heaven to us in the dirt. He lived the life of obedience that God required. The holiness that God requires because his holiness, holy, is found in Jesus, the holy and the righteous one. And Jesus Christ, the righteous, went to the cross for us. He offered himself once and for all for our sin and the blood that he shed washes the stains of our sin and clothes us in his righteousness. And so in him, we stand justified before a holy God. We can approach a holy God because Jesus came down to us in the dirt. I want you just for a moment to look at the blessings of the new covenant, this new mountain. In Hebrews 12 verse 18, it goes on to say that you've been brought on to brought to the mountain of Zion. It means that as a Christian you have already been counted as a citizen of the new uh, of God's new city. It means that we have joined the host of his of his angels who sing to him in worship. It means that we belong to the church of the firstborn. It means that we will have come to the God who judges all and yet we will not stand before God in our sin and pay the penalty. We will stand in the righteousness of Jesus. It says that we've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, which is a a little bit of a confusing thing, but it's referring to the Old Testament saints who are awaiting the resurrection of their bodies when Jesus returns. And we too have this hope, that death does not have a hold on us, but when Jesus comes, we will also rise in a new body, in a physical resurrection. And we have come to the mediator of a new covenant, to Jesus, and we have an intimate relationship with him. You walk with him, you talk with him uh, each day. We can approach our holy God because Jesus has come to us in the dirt. You see, Jesus is the defining factor of your relationship with God. He's the one who fully obeyed God. He's the one who washes you clean. He's the one who keeps you not at a distance like they had to stand, but actually brings you right into the courtroom of his holiness. You can come to the throne of God because of what Jesus has done for you. Now, what does this mean for us here today? The first thing I think it means for us is that we must be thankful for the new covenant in Jesus. We must be thankful, and the Hebrew writer tells us this very thing, to be thankful for what Jesus has done for us. You know, thankfulness, it's actually living a life of thankfulness that actually brings the blessings of the new covenant to your experience. And so it's like this week, when you, when you spend time with God, when you wake up in the morning, it's about coming to him and saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm already counted as being a member of your new city, of the future that you have planned for us. Thank you that when I worship you, I don't just do it on my own, but I have joined in with the angels that have worshipped you for eternity. Thank you that I've been included in your body, that I now belong to you, that I do not need to fear a thing, that I've come to God and God is awesome in his power and he is going to judge, and yet I do not need to fear judgment anymore because I am right with him. Thank you that physical death holds no power over me Because promise to me is a physically resurrected body. Thank you for the bond that I have with Jesus. The New Testament over and over again describes this bond, this unity with Jesus as like being in him. We're in him, we're united with him. And this is an unbreakable thing. I wonder this morning if you might be thankful for the new covenant in his blood, that you don't stand around a mountain in fear and trembling before God, but you've been brought to a better mountain. The, the blood of Jesus that has ramped, ransomed you and made you right before God. The second implication for us is that we must pursue a life of obedience to King Jesus. You know, many professing Christians today, they think that talking of obedience now as the church to God is legalism, like trying to earn your way to God. And there's no real need to worry about holiness because God has saved me anyway. And so it doesn't really matter. And that might be the most dangerous lie that you can believe. Because remember what God said to Moses, I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You belong to him. You notice in the great letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter one, three and four, Paul says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7, that God did not call us to impurity, but to holiness. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And so, yes, we must get the order right It's salvation by grace alone. Jesus did it all. All the work that was necessary to save us, Jesus did. But grace is the root of our salvation. And obedience is the fruit. Grace is transforming grace. It produces holiness in our life. The author, Kevin DeYoung, he wrote a book called The Hole in Our Holiness. It's a book to the church And his observation was that often in today's churches, we've put holiness to the side. He says, is obedience what your church is known for? Is it what your church is known for? Is it what other Christians think about you when they look at your life? That's a, a submitted person, a person who is living to seek to honour and please God. They're not a person with a legalistic heart. They're not a person who's like marching to the beat of the drum because it's an obligation. They're a person who understands and is experiencing transforming grace. The God who bore them up out of eagle's wings and now out of joy and love, they are seeking by faith in Christ to change from one degree of glory to the next. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, your set-apartness from the things of the world, from worldliness to be holy as I am holy. And so Kevin DeYoung poses this and he says, is that even what you want to be known for? There's so many things in our time that we can be want to be known for, that churches can be want, want to be known for, like being creative or being relevant or being a world changer or being open-minded. And it sounds a lot more exciting than boring old obedience, but... Do you know that obedience is the mark of a true Christian? It truly is the mark of a true Christian. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus said that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Who does the will of my Father. In other words, one who has been transformed by my grace And the fruit of that grace is obedience. The fruit of that grace is being changed by God. You know, it's possible to profess the right things and say the right things and yet still not have come to the mountain of God's grace. And it's obedience in our life and holiness and change in our life that actually reveals that we have come to the mountain of his grace. Now, I want to say this. This should not undermine people's confidence, Christian confidence in being justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, it should not do that. God declares us righteous on the basis of Jesus' work. But having had that positional change, taken out of the world and placed in his kingdom, there ought to be an obedience that follows. And God knows that you're not going to be perfect And that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about now being sanctified or being made holy. We're positionally holy, but now we are growing in holiness from one degree of glory to the other. This doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect this side of his coming, but it means that God is working in your life through faith in Jesus Christ that you are actually experiencing that change. So church, I would say this to you. Because I love you as your pastor, genuinely love and care for you care for your soul, pray for you. I would say this, don't be so quick to say, legalism works righteousness over there. Don't put that on me. Don't be so quick to neglect obedience and think that it's not that significant because it is the mark of a true Christian. It's the mark of transforming grace. Some, sometimes you might hear this, you know, nothing I, do, I can do for God is, is any good anyway. It's all just filthy rags. And that's true if you're talking about those things in order to get you saved and right with God. But it's not true when, it, when it, you're talking about a relationship with God. Because I, I send my kids up to their room to go and clean their room. And that's good for them and that's good for us. And when they go up and do it, and then they come down and excitedly show us what, they do, what they've done. I don't scoff at that and think it's insignificant. I'm pleased. And there's intimacy. And there's blessing that, has, that comes out of the obedience. It's the same way with us and God. That our obedience actually triggers blessing. And I'm not just talking about external, circumstantial blessing, that, that, though that may come. But I'm talking about... Living in the will of God in such a way that whatever's coming to you in your life, there's this peace that passes understanding from knowing that you're in the will of God, that you're seeking to obey him with your life. There's a a driving reason why this is important. I think we see this in the text, that we must be ready for his return. That's why holiness is important. We must be ready for the coming of the king. I can't help but notice in this passage the allusion to a future coming God a future coming king, notice at the very beginning there is the gospel given, transforming grace through a mediator. That's, that's what is announced at the beginning. And then God announces that he's coming. And then God says to Moses, tell the people, be ready. And then he says that he's coming after, after the third day. And then God comes to the sound of trumpet blasts. And then the people stand before him and the media come, mediator comes down to them. The Hebrew writer goes on to say at that time his voice shook the earth at the time of Sinai but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken so of all temporary things that is things that have been made in order that the things cannot, that, that cannot be shaken may remain. There is an eternal everlasting kingdom that is marked by holiness that has your name on it. A kingdom that cannot be shaken, which is your inheritance. And that is what we're living for. That's what we must be preparing ourselves for most in this life. 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Jesus said, therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. I was talking to somebody recently, somebody who's become a Christian in the past five years, so a reasonably new Christian, and they posed to me this question with sincerity, why in the church these days do we not hear anyone talk about the second coming or the coming of Jesus? And it struck me because this person was a fairly new believer and the whole basis of them coming to faith was on the basis of that secure future in Christ. And yet the experience that this person was having was like, where's the joy? Where's the readiness? Where's the preparation for that coming? And it, it actually rebuked me. It made me think maybe, I don't know, a couple of reasons that maybe it's because these days churches know that if you can just make everyone feel really awesome about their current day situation, that that will just keep them coming back. And so we just, that's what we do, we just make people feel good about themselves all the time to make this life as comfortable as possible and just ease into heaven at the end. Or maybe we're ashamed about it because it sounds ridiculous. You actually believe that Jesus is coming back? You know, the uh, apostle Peter, he actually foreshadowed that. He got it out in front of that in Second Peter three. He says, "Scoffers will come. Scoffers will come, and, and in the last days, following their own sinful desires, and they'll say, "Where is the promise of his coming?" Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, but they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that when uh, existed was deluged with water and perished like in the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction on the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any would perish, but all would reach to repentance. This is the heart of God. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You know, every person has the choice on which mountain they will meet God? Will they meet God on a place like Sinai where your relationship with God is defined by fear and trembling and uncleanliness before a holy God You're on your own? You're exposed for who you are, falling short of a holy God. Or will it be on Mount Mount Zion where God comes but you don't fear his coming? You, You receive it with joy and you approach the holiness of God without fear because Jesus has come to you in the dirt. He's washed you clean, and he's clothed you in his righteousness. Let's, let's close our eyes and bow our heads. I want to ask you this morning, if you've defined your relationship with God on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, there's no other way to define your relationship with God but on him and his righteousness. There might be some of you here today who don't know where you stand with God. You're not sure if you'd meet Him on Sinai or in Mount Zion. The place where you stand with Jesus. And I just encourage you, if you're not sure and the Lord is speaking to you this morning, that you simply might yield in your spirit to Him. That you might say, I can't stand before you, God, on my own. I need Jesus. That's what saves. Not the words but a genuine spiritual transaction that happens in your heart. It's, it's a will that God puts in your heart to say, I can't stand on my own. I must come to Jesus. He's my mediator. Would you put your trust in him today? I want to encourage others of you here this morning. You call yourself a believer. You know you're a believer in Jesus. And right now in your life, you're looking at some things, you're recognizing there's some places of disobedience in your heart and life. And this morning's just an opportunity, as a member of his church, a member of the future, of the future city that he has for you, just to come and say, I'm, I'm denying you, God, at the moment in this area of my life. I confess that to you. And I ask you for the strength and the grace to overcome and to begin obeying you in, the, in, in this area. Because, not because I need to earn you love, but because I, I want, because you're holy and you're awesome. And because of what Jesus has done for me. And because I want to experience blessing. And there can be no blessing without obedience. So I come to you and just confess those things. Father God, I praise you that we have been brought to a better mountain, the new covenant in Jesus' blood, who washes our sins away and clothes us in his righteousness, that we may boldly approach your throne. I pray, Lord, today that we would be a church marked by obedience, there would be people, families, husbands, wives, children, marked by obedience, marked by knowing your transforming grace so much that it is changing us from one degree of glory to the other. Oh Lord, we ask for this, Lord, by your grace, would you change us, would you work in us, would you give us an appreciation again of your holiness? I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.